Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Um, today, um, we're into a, a bit of a shorter series, um, which is called The Fifth Act. And um, like I said before, this is going to be a bit of a lazy message for me because I've got someone else and we're going to watch a bit of a video who's going to do a lot of this. But let me start off this message by simply saying, Jack and Jill went up. Have you ever thought to yourself, what if Jack and Jill actually did not go up the hill? Seriously, like what if, what if like they, they were like over there and they saw a hill and it never occurred to them, oh my goodness, Jack, yes, Jill, there's a hill. Hmm. Maybe we should walk up. What if that story was never resolved? Have you ever thought about that? Or was that just me? I think about crazy things like that. We would be thinking, wait a minute, the story is not, like, is not finished, it's stalled. There's even been a cadence, Jack and Jill went up. The, oh. it, it seems to be stalled in the middle. And even now, I know there are personality types here and you are just like inside of you, you're smiling on the outside, but inside you're groaning and like, Dave, finish this. Okay, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after. Do you feel better? But isn't it interesting, isn't it interesting that we feel this internal angst when something doesn't come to an appropriate end? It's very interesting, I think, that that's actually a, a really interesting thing for me. I remember in 2010, the grand final, um, the AFL grand final, does anyone remember that? Yeah. AFL grand final, Collingwood and St Kilda, and it was like leading up to it, but what, what happened? I cannot believe we still let Collingwood supporters in the church, right? Anyway, even Jesus loves you. <laughs> but but, but, but I, I remember like all of this build-up and it ended with a draw, didn't it? So what they did, they replayed the grand final the next week and it was kind of this anticlimax. In fact, it was completely exhausting to actually go through all of that ever again. Have you ever been to a movie where the directors actually decided to leave the end of the movie open because obviously they're leaving it open for the sequel. So you come back to it and you walk out of that thing and, and there hasn't been a determined end. You think, man, I just got ripped off. I just spent 25 bucks to go and spend two and a half hours sitting down watching these people act on screen. I didn't even get a resolution. Anyone else like that? When we don't do that, or if you listen to this symphony and, and they come to this incredible, monstrous, just creative crescendo and, and it's just amazing and there's absolutely no applause at the end. It's like, that feels wrong, doesn't it? Because there's something about us as humanity that, that, that we are longing, we are searching for an appropriate end to things, an appropriate end to um, stories. I think the modern phenomenon of binging, does anyone binge here? The rest of you are lying. Well, I know like... A lot of us binge. <laughs> We've been binging on The Chosen lately. Is it? Have you guys watched The Chosen? That's, that's my goodness. Um, I was actually thinking next year we actually might actually um, do some Chosen kind of nights at church just to get into the story. And um, I thought, uh, yeah, anyway, that, that's next year. We've got to wait for next year. But this phenomenon of binging means that we don't need to wait for next week. Because when I was young... And I was watching a TV show. I needed to wait seven days before you watch the next episode. But now we get to do it straight away because we know the story hasn't finished. Oh, the story hasn't finished. I can just... There's something about humanity. We, we are fascinated and we are preoccupied with stories because fundamentally, we just need to know this. We are story people. We are story people. There's a reason why people are relentlessly trying to find their tribe. They're looking for their people. Actually... 
What they're desperately looking for, they're trying to find their story, whether that be family, whether that be vocation, whether they even just shift into tribalism, which is absolutely rife at the moment. Tribalism has a, different, a lot of different uh, manifestations, like it can be politics, it can be activism, it can be sports clubs, it can be fashion, it can be music, but every single tribe has a story or a narrative, and we are story people who are desperately trying to find meaning, significance, and identity, and we excavate that stuff in story, in narrative. No wonder, then, that God chose to reveal himself to us in story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Wow, this is going to be a remarkable story. Isn't it incredible that the way that God chose to reveal ourselves from the very beginning, he says, I am going to show you who I am through story because we are story people. And over the last three years, if you've been journeying with us, and if you haven't, that's, that's great. Welcome to the family. Um, but you're on that journey now. Over the last three years, I've been very, very intentional in trying to get our beautiful church to be reintroduced to the story of God. Um, that's not new to you guys, is it? Hopefully you've picked that up. And the reason why I've done this is because over the last 20 or so years of actually stepping into ministry, professional ministry or whatever, I've kind of come to terms with a couple of things. The first thing is I've kind of realized that a lot of Christians do not actually know the Jesus who they profess and who they worship. You may come to a church service like this, lift up your hands and sing some songs which are on a screen, but really a lot of Christians don't actually know the Jesus who they are worshiping. The other thing which I've come to realize is that a lot of Christians don't even know the gospel that Jesus announced. We may be very well acquainted with the gospel that the church is announcing, or the gospel that a celebrity pastor is announcing, but very, very few of us really understand or have thought deeply about the gospel that Jesus announced. And that's actually the gospel which I want to know about, isn't it? You know, if you want to know that, we've just spent 31 or so weeks just actually unpacking that gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. And another thing which I've come to terms with um, in our in, in my life, I've, oh, it sounds like I've come to terms with a lot of things in my life, <laughs> That many followers of Jesus Christ would rather be told what to think rather than have their imaginations absolutely blown and expanded and begin the journey of discovering how to think. They are two completely different things. And if you do pay attention, especially if, especially if you are a communicator, if you pay attention to the messages that I deliver or if you pay attention in the different forums that we sit in, whether I'm with people in a connect group or having a coffee or, or in a team night and all that, you, you, you might actually recognise, wait a minute, Dave's not actually, he's frustrating because he's not actually telling us what to think. No, no, no. I'm trying to actually train and teach and actually expand our imagination so we discover how to think in this present cultural moment. Dave, and I know that knowing that um, the human condition as humanity, we will always try to default to the lowest common denominator. It will always be easiest for us to actually go to our default and say, Dave, just tell me what to think about this. Tell me what to think about vaccines. I will tell you how to think about it as an image bearer of God who should have a preference for the health and the betterment and the, and the welfare of others as opposed to yourself. But unfortunately, we live in a, a liberal democracy which has elevated self above others, but the kingdom of God elevates others instead of self. So in that kind of paradigm, how are we going to think about that? Okay. Now everyone's gone really quiet. 
So I want to, I want to, I want to get us to understand how to think. Okay, how to think. The fifth sentence in our purpose, purpose statement, I've actually got it on a slide up here, um, says this, that we work to discover the truth of God's word, believing it addresses every issue of the human heart. In other words, if you are part of the New Spring family, here's the deal. You're going to have to work. I have to work. If I have to work, you have to work. We're all going to have to work. If we truly believe that the gospel addresses every issue of the human heart, well, that means we're going to actually have to do a little bit of work. And it needs to be this idea in my thinking, Dave, I'm not coming to you per se to tell me what to think about this, what to think about that, what to think about this, because there are a lot of things in our present culture which aren't even mentioned in the Bible. You know, a simple one, dating. Here is my dating message from scripturally for you. Here we go. Ready? That's it. That's a modern day concept. But how do you apply godly wisdom into a modern day construct? Well, that's not about telling you what to think. That's about how to think. What does it mean to be truly human? What does it mean to look to the flourishment of the other person? What does it mean not to use that other person for your personal pleasure and for your personal gain and for your personal like, imagination? What does it mean to actually elevate another person in that context where you're not yet married, but you're actually just dating? What does that mean? How does sexual ethic enter into that conversation? Because it enters into that conversation very differently to the Western kind of paradigm. You know what I'm saying? So that's what we want to do. So after the, over the last um, three years, we've journeyed through a couple of different things. I've got a couple of different slides. Do you guys remember in our connect groups, we went through the Bible course. I've got this slide up here. Do any of you guys remember that? We'll go through that again. That was just amazing. To actually, you know, when I first figured out that that was actually going to be a great course for our church, Andrew and I were leading young adults in our lounge room, and we did that. You, you were there, right? And like when Imogen said, "I get it," it was like, "Oh wow, <laughs> we're on <to> something." <laughs> no, but it was actually, it was actually that as they were just going through that that model. And do you remember, like, I actually got like my father-in-law to build a model. It's actually at the back, right? Like the, the, the model, but what was that? that? That course was all about understanding the story of God. We have 66 books of the Bible. Woohoo! But, but, but understand that's a library. And they are all ordered. And like, unfortunately, in our canon of scripture, they're kind of out of order. But if you can see how it all fits, then you can understand the story. And, and, and then we went on to this series called According to Mark. And this is the journey of uh, the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus, Mark 1, verse 1 to 3, actually talks about what is the reason, what is the purpose for Jesus coming. We broke that down. This is the second Exodus moment. You know, we broke that down and it's like, okay, we need to understand the story of Jesus. What is Jesus actually doing? And then last year, we went on to a series in Ephesians. Do you remember that? And this is the vision of God. Like this is Paul's last letter. This is his manifesto. If you were actually going to just deliver one last piece of writing, one last piece of advice before you kick the bucket, what would you do? Well, Ephesians is it. And we went through Ephesians to actually see the vision of God, the vision of the church, how the church plays a cosmic role, not a small, little, pitiful, little role. We've got such a small vision of the church, but the vision of the church should be so broad and so expansive because it is playing a cosmic role not a little pitiful role. And that means that we as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to renew our minds to what the church actually is. Because a lot of us think the church is just so inconsequential. No, the church is playing a cosmic role in God's plan. 
And then this year, obviously, we went on to the Sermon on the Mount. And then after all this, Sermon on the Mount, we actually get to the place finally, finally, which is incredible, for me anyway, incredible, where we can start talking about this paradigm which we are calling the Fifth Act. The Fifth Act. In 1991, I think I was only in Year 7, wow. In 1991... One of N.T. Wright's sermons was published in writing. And it's subsequently been the focus of further articles and further thought. And his sermon, which was actually published as a, a, in writing, was called, How Can the Bible Be Authoritative? How can the Bible be authoritative? Have you ever heard a Christian say, you know, the Bible is the final authority in my life? Have you ever heard that? Well, my question is, in what way is the Bible the final authority in your life? Is it, do you see the Bible as something like telling you what to think? Or, and it does have that, or have you set yourself on the journey of how to think in this world by being a faithful witness, being the church? So in this sermon, Tom Wright uses this analogy, which has since been used, to expand the imagination and depth of thinking of many people. And um, it's been something that's been very helpful for myself, especially as there's been an endeavour to journey our church over the last three or so years to kind of coming to this place. And um, it's a paradigm which I hope is going to help us um, to actually um, step into our faith in a more faithful, faithful way. And the analogy is called the fifth act, the fifth act. And the analogy goes, imagine that somehow you found an exceptional script of an exceptional play, except the last act was not fully complete. And I thought to myself, you know what, I could actually try to articulate this, but what better person to explain the fifth act than Tom Wright himself? So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to save you of that. But we're going to watch Tom Act actually explain what he means when he talks about the fifth act and we as a church in 2021 being fifth act people. So why don't we look at the screen and I'm sure he'll explain it to you a lot better than I possibly could. Supposing somebody were to dig up or to find in some dusty attic somewhere a wonderful play which got you as far as the beginning of Act 5 and then most of that act was missing and you just had some sketches as to where that act was to go. Now, how are you going to work from there on? You might say, well, let's get the best playwright available and get him or her to write us the script for that fifth act. But actually, I suspect many actors would say, no, we will soak ourselves in acts one, two, three, and four. We will learn the sort of characters we are to be, and then we will understand what the beginning of the act five is and what the end of this Act 5 is, and then we will improvise from where we start to where we have to get. Now, improvisation is an odd business. I used to play jazz in the days of my youth, believe it or not. And one of the things that people often say about improvising is, oh, you're just making up playing whatever you like. The answer is absolutely not. Ask any musician. To improvise means you have to listen very clearly to what everyone else is doing. You have to know the basic rhythmic harmonic structure. You have to know how the underlying theme works. And you have to know particularly where you're all going at the end. It's 
not just making up anything at all. It's weaving different new creative patterns around the musical drama to get where you have to go. So improvisation doesn't just mean doing your own thing and who cares. It means paying very close attention to what sort of a story it is we're living in, in order then to make it more explicitly applied to what this means for us as Christians, that by prayer and by invoking the Holy Spirit and by sharing in the life of the worship of the church, and particularly by getting involved in the mission of the church, especially to people who are much worse off than we, people who are very poor or without homes or people who are refugees, many opportunities to do that. And Jesus himself talked about doing that kind of stuff in order to meet him, in order to discover afresh who he really is. So scripture, prayer, sacrament, service, these are the ways, these are the basic harmonic structures for our improvisation. But then we have to learn to take initiatives. We have to learn to do new things that maybe the church hadn't done like this before. Not that we throw the old rules away because we are still faithful to the first four acts, absolutely faithful. But the, the, those four acts themselves project us forward into this dangerous, risky, but exhilarating business of taking responsibility. Because after all, this is about becoming genuinely human. And being genuinely human be, means image bearers, reflecting God's image, and God is the creator. So we are to be procreators, if you like. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are God's workmanship, and the word he uses for that is poema. It's a Greek word which corresponds to our word poem. We are God's poetry, and God wants us to be poetic creatures, improvising, to take this act forward in the direction that, in the scriptures themselves, it's clear it has to go. When we come to the Bible, particularly when young people come to the Bible and often for the first time think it's time for me to read this whole thing through, it's very daunting. And so one way of making it simpler, which people fall into, is thinking I will just take bits out here that will help me, bits out there that will teach me this doctrine or that truth, whatever it may be. And then the Bible becomes basically an unsorted edition of a kind of Christian textbook. Here's something to believe about this, here's how you should behave under these circumstances, whatever. And that's a very bad way to read the Bible because that's not how it's written, it's not how and why the people who wrote it actually put it together. The Bible offers itself to us as a great narrative, not as uh, a book which has lots of lists about rules to obey and doctrines to believe, though there are plenty of those on the way, of course, but as a story which moves from creation to new creation, and as a story which catches us up in the middle of it. And stories work differently from lists of rules and things like that, because stories have beginnings and middles and ends and different phases. And in particular, when we think of very serious stories like some of the great novels or some of the great plays, uh, think of a Shakespeare play, then the story will have a different set of phased rhythms and certain things which set up the narrative and make it all difficult and tense, and then other things which come in and seem to make it even worse, and then something happens which might might have brought it round where it was going and then that doesn't seem quite to work and then finally there's some resolution and then we find the ending which may also be a beginning depending on what story it is. 
uh, something which is pointing forward to new things which are now going to happen as a result of that drama. So when you take the Bible and you say, here it is, this great story from creation to new creation with all sorts of things going on in between, particularly the story of Israel and particularly the story of Jesus himself, then I've found over the years it really helps to see it as a play in five acts. Uh, the first act is creation itself. All Christian theology, like all Jewish theology for that matter, starts with the affirmation of a good God making a good world. This is a good place to be. It's not trash. It's not rubbish. God is not going to get rid of it and do something totally different. But this good world is put into the care of human beings who are called to reflect God's image into the world. And that's an extraordinary vocation, an extraordinary calling to be God's image bearers, reflecting his wise stewardship into the world and reflecting the praises of creation back to God himself. That's the first act. And if we get that wrong, if we misunderstand what's going on there, if, for instance, we think that humans were put in this garden just as some kind of moral test to see if they could score 10 out of 10, and if not, they were in deep trouble, then we will gradually distort everything else which is going on thereafter. So if we start with this good world, with God making it, with humans given responsibility for it, then act two is when it all goes horribly wrong. And in the wonderful storytelling mode of Genesis 3 to 11, we see it going from initial human rebellion right the way through to arrogant human empire. And then Act 3, which is much longer, runs from the call of Abraham right through to the time of Jesus, which is the story of Israel. And again, many Christians attempted to miss that out or just to treat it as a, a miscellaneous rag bag of odd ideas and principles and, and prophecies and uh, ideals and examples of people getting it right or getting it wrong. And of course, all those are there. But the story of Israel means what it means as Act 3 of this five-act play. And Act 4 is Jesus himself. Jesus who draws Israel's story to its climax and does for Israel and the world what Israel and the world couldn't do for themselves. And when we look at the Gospels, each one of the Gospels in its own way begins by hooking the story that it's telling into the story of Israel. Think of Matthew telling the genealogy from Abraham all the way to Jesus, for instance, or John opening with those echoes of Genesis 1, in the beginning was the word, and so on. The Gospel writers themselves are telling us that the story they are telling doesn't stand by itself. It's the climactic act of this drama. But then, of course, the Gospels themselves end with the death and resurrection of Jesus, not with a sense of, okay, that solves it all, there's nothing more to happen, but rather with this strange new vocation, the renewal of the original human vocation, that those who follow Jesus are to be equipped with his spirit to be God's new creation people. They are people who are put right so that the world may be put right. And when we get that vision, we not only have a way to read the Bible, we have an extraordinary energy for the mission of the people of God in the world. This is what it means to be renewed human beings. So when I read the Bible and when I encourage others to do so, 
I always say to people, please read it in great swathes, large chunks. I've been recently reading one of the Harry Potter stories to one of my grandchildren, and he's only a little kid. He's not even seven yet, but he's getting hold of the large picture. And you can ask him about earlier volumes in the series, and he understands how they all fit together. We are hardwired to do story, and that's how to read the Bible. Then, of course, you do need to focus in on little bits here and there, because every single bit needs working at needs fresh understanding and we need it for ourselves and for the church and the world but the main thing is to understand those five acts and particular in, in particular where we fit in within the fifth act to be fifth act people for the sake of the world indwelt by the spirit so that the story from creation to new creation will be going forward and we'll be able to play our part within it beautiful did you understand him now, one thing I love about these, um, the, these like super smart like theologians who committed their life to study, they are just so gentle and just so beautiful in the way that they just, oh, I just think that's just amazing. Um, the five, five acts, I've got a slide that actually just um, shows those five acts. There we go. Ephesians 2 verse 10. What does it mean to be a five-act church? For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things he planned for us long ago. I love how Tom Wright was actually saying that we're God's poetry. That we are to be poetic creatures improvising to take this act forward to the place that the scriptures point us to go. So individually and collectively as a church, if we had in that mind that we are right now in act number five. Act 1's happened, Act 2 has happened, Act 3 has happened, Act 4 has happened, and now, here we go, we are now on stage. It is now our pleasure and our privilege to actually, to actually act out this incredible drama of God. We know what the beginning started like, you know? Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit comes, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. That's good, right? Not for the sake of making spectacles of ourselves, no, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do these good works that He has planned for us, that, that we would do that. So we know how the fifth act begins, but we also know how the fifth act ends. God is going to be with His people. There's going to be a new heavens. There's going to be a new earth. Justice is going to come. He's going to make all things new. He's not throwing out the old for the new. That's what insurance companies do. No, He is renovating the cosmos and He is making all things new. Okay? Now, now, if you have in your mindset and in your theology that at the end of the day, God is throwing out the old and replacing it with new, that'll mess up your theology because you will not care anything about creation. Because you think, it doesn't matter anyway. It's all going to be burned up and we're going to get something new. That is not what the Bible teaches. He is making all things new. He is not replacing old for new. See, little, little, little twists like that actually really have big outcomes when it comes to our theology and even when it comes to our, our missiology, our mission, and how we see that. So we kind of know, we, we, we know how this act starts and we know how this act ends, but in order to be faithful witnesses, in order to be faithful five-act people and a faithful five-act um, church, it requires two fundamental things. The first thing it's going to absolutely demand of us is that we have a working knowledge of the previous four acts. 
And that has been the intent, that has been the aspiration of this church over the last three years, that we, by the grace of God, somehow would get into the story of God, that we would have some working knowledge of Act 1, Act 2. Act 1, creation, a good world. Act 2, stuff goes terribly wrong, doesn't it? Acts, like Genesis 3, fall of man. Genesis 6, there seems to be this mysterious fall of heavenly beings, which is commentated on in Deuteronomy 28, which lets us know that like, what we see, that there's actually more than meets the eye. Genesis 11, the building of the Tower of Babel. All of a sudden, man thinks they're all that, and they try to build this, this big empire, and they actually try to manipulate God. Because the reason why you build towers is to actually make God, the gods come down to you so you can actually get what you want. Now, has that mindset infiltrated the church where we actually try to get from God what we want? It has. Absolutely it has. And then after that falls completely apart, guess what? God does what he does in Genesis at the beginning. He calls another family, right? Then we have Israel and they go up and down and left and right. And then you have Jesus who comes and this new world is broken in. His announcement, the gospel, has broken in. And all of a sudden, now we are the people where we have to outwork. What does the Sermon on the Mount mean? What does it mean to actually push out this new creation? What does it mean to actually be present and go into places of despair and places of darkness? What does it mean to actually be five-act people and actually go into places like Grovelands and actually sit there and wait and wait and just be present and see the kingdom of God just burst through? That's what it means to be five-act people. So it means that we need to have a working knowledge of the first four acts, but it also means that we need to take that risky approach where we need to improvise, which means we're going to do things that previous generations did not do. You know, one of the classic ones I always get, Dave, we used to do this, we used to do this. Guess what? That stuff is not going to work today. It's not going to work today. Because now we are to poetically and creatively with imagination to actually improvise faithfully what God is doing in this world, but in new, brand new, incredible ways. That's what we're to do. And imagination is something that we, um, which is, is kind of um, hard because a lot of our structures in the Western world has been structured to tell us what to think as opposed to how to think. Do you see, like, if we actually have a church where it's like, come to church and they will tell you what to think about this, what to think about this, what to think about this. There is no scope or any permission for you to improvise this fifth act. That's how detrimental that philosophy can actually be. And if you disagree with that, it's okay. There's plenty of churches that will tell you what to think. How do we view the story is absolutely necessary. We are to see the Bible as an unfinished drama, which contains its own impetus, its own forward movement, which demands to be concluded in the proper manner. It requires that actors are responsible for entering into the story as it stands in order to first understand how the threads could be appropriately drawn together and then to put that understanding into effect by speaking and acting with both innovation and consistency. I think there's an amazing, amazing opportunity that we have to do that. And this is definitely the story that our church is on at the moment. And I've got so much more stuff, but I've drastically run out of time. Um, and I want to do so much more. But next week, we'll actually dig a bit deeper. But let me just like, put a couple of questions to you for you to think about. Um, I was going to see if we had time for you to just maybe chat among yourselves. But what are some issues concerning 2021 that 
didn't necessarily, weren't in the conversation 20 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. What are, what are some, some things? Because you see, there, there, there are issues at hand in 2021 that, that were not even in the imagination of anyone 20 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago, but they demand and they require that we now faithfully improvise in the midst of that. A huge one, let me tell you a huge one. 20 years ago, we did not have this term, this reality called the attention economy. There was, it didn't exist. But now... We are absolutely bombarded by things that are trying to distract us. And the problem is that research has told us if you're going to think about anything like, like, like deeply, it's going to take at least 20 minutes with no distractions before you start thinking about anything deeply. I remember listening to Jerry Seinfeld. I was watching um, Comedians and Cars with Coffee. Has anyone watched that? And he was lamenting the lack of greatness in the, com uh, in the comedic arena. And comedians, I've never talked to a comedian. Some people think they're comedians. But, 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 but as far as I can tell, comedians are super smart, super observant. And for him to make that like, sort of observation, and the reason why he said it is because we can't think deeply about things. We can't think deeply. And, and it amazed me that this is a, a, a comedian talking about his arena, saying there is no longer greatness in this arena. And you have to think about it. What does it come down to when the gospel has this cognitive responsibility of messing with our minds? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this present evil age, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. What happens if we're in an attention economy that we can't actually stay focused or even be bored for like more than 15 seconds before being drawn here, drawn there, drawn there? What about the, the, the dissonance internally where we believe things? We say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe in human flourishing. I believe in pro-life. I believe in all these things. But there's a, the, 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 there are values and there are things and there are thoughts in our mind that are actually, like, actually contradict what we actually say. And we haven't got the time to sit and to ponder and actually, like, actually deal with that dissonance. And actually allow like, like, like just time to think about it. Say, wait a minute. Scripture's this, my worldview is this, but I ultimately believe this and I'm functioning as this. There needs to be a change or there needs to be a repentance. So you see, that, that's something with the attention economy. Uh, I, I think, as I mentioned before, being born into this ideology that's so pervasive of this liberal democracy. We're born into it. This is all I know. This is all you know. But the liberal, this, this philosophy, this worldview, which is seen as like, like, like a saviour in some regard, it elevates the, the rights of the individual. That's what it does. And we love it, don't we? I love having my rights. You love having your rights. A lot better than some other places. But how does that correlate when we're supposed to outwork a fifth act kind of paradigm where our preference is supposed to be for the other and not for me? How does that work when, like, the, the, the world I'm born into, the, the, the preference and the posture is like, no, actually, I'm first. And then Jesus says, actually, you're last. Oh, my goodness. That messes with us, doesn't it? And, and that kind of, like, goes into a whole bunch of stuff. What does it mean? This is a big one. What does it mean to be a faithful digital citizen? I am no longer a citizen of Australia. We've been going through that sex, um, Jesus sexuality and gender course with our fellas. And a couple of weeks ago, there was this term that was thrown out. And for me, it was like, oh my goodness, you're right. 
I had, it had never occurred to me that I am an Australian citizen, but I am also a digital citizen. How in the world am I supposed to be faithful in a digital world? See, these are ideas and things that didn't exist 20 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. How do I live in a world that's returned to tribalism? Have you noticed that there's so much polarization in the world? There's so much divisiveness in the world, even in the church? What do I do with that? Do I add to the division? How do I engage? See, these things didn't exist 20 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. And I'm not saying this is easy, but in order for us to be Act 5 people, we actually have to be able to think. And guess what? We're going to get a lot of this wrong. Any of you guys got some stuff wrong? You may have posted something and you look back and say, ooh, all these comments are attacking me. Maybe it wasn't the wisest thing to post that. Well, maybe it wasn't, but we all make mistakes. And that's why collectively it's important for us to actually show grace to each other, show love to each other, not to um, assassinate people's characters, but to lift each other up and to propel each other on. But we are living in a very, very different world right now, which is why what we did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago is not sufficient for this present cultural moment. And if God in his providence thought to himself, you know what? This group of people are well equipped to handle everything that this current world throws at them. And more than that, they are equipped by my Holy Spirit. They have the Word of God. They know who I am. They have the ability to actually know who they are supposed to be. Not only are they equipped to handle everything in this present world, they are equipped and they have the ability to completely change it. But it's going to mean we need to think through, what does it mean to be Act 5 people? What does it mean? What does it mean to understand Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4, so that I know how this story is going, so I understand it? What does it mean to actually listen to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and actually start walking that out? This is the beginning of a big thought for us as New Spring Church. And we're only on day one, so don't stress. It's only on day one. But it is the absolute opportunity of a lifetime for any Christian or any church that's willing to walk in it. And I hope that at the very least we've started this, but at the very least Tom Wright has articulated in a clear way this idea, this paradigm of being Act 5 New Creation people. Amen. Let me pray for you and who knows, tonight we might go into a little bit more. Father, we thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the times in which we live, the complicated, messy, the complexity of the systems that are in play. And I thank you for your faith in us, your trust in us, that in your providence that you have planted us right here in 2021. You've allowed every um, part of our history to form us, Every bit of knowledge, every step that we've taken, every encounter, every experience, every relationship has brought us to this point. And you've given us your beautiful Holy Spirit and you revealed yourself to us in your word. And you've invited us to step into your story. And I pray that we as a church would be faithful to walk this out.
to its rightful end, Lord. I ask that we would be courageous, that we would not take the posture of seeing people as enemies or, or, or things as enemies, but there will be a posture of love, that we would love our neighbor, we would love our enemies, that we would actually be a light in this world, that we would be able to, by the grace of God, show the nations, show the nations how to get back to you, how to come to you. Shape us, we pray, in Jesus' name.